Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I'm joined by Gerban van Heerden. Kerry, how are you doing? I'm all good. No complaints. No complaints. Very good. Very good. Uh, and also Mr. Chris Hutton. Chris, how are you doing, sir? Hi, Nick. Kerry, doing well, thank you. Um, first time that we get to chat, Nick, since, since you've been gone, for me to paraphrase, and since you've been back, so very happy to be on the show with you again. No, very good to have you back. Um, now, let's get into the news of today. And that is that the DA in the Western Cape is moving ahead with the Provincial Powers Bill, uh, which it hopes uh, to get done before next year's election. Uh, the bill will uh, go through the Western Cape Legislature and will seek to devolve certain functions from the national to provincial government. Um, they say that our offer here the DA says our offer here today is to offer a bill aligned with the constitution and the provincial constitution. The national government has shown over 30 years their failure in delivering services. Um, the idea here is to devolve current competencies that are sort of, you know, national competencies, but have devolved levels to the provincial government, like policing and transportation. And the DA has been talking about this a lot recently in the Western Cape. They've talked about how they believe that the national government is not servicing them well with police or rail in particular. And those are kind of the most contentious issues of uh, uh, between the national government and the DA province. Um, the legislature has notified members that the bill is on the agenda for the next house sitting. And so first they're going to establish an ad hoc committee, which will then send the bill for public participation. So it's still very early in the beginning of the legislative process, but I suspect they'll push it through next year. Um, unless something dramatic happens. Uh, the DA's deputy provincial leader, J.P. Smith, said, SAP's incompetence has, has seen them losing their grip on crime. We are looking for a solution where the police's internal culture and moral compass has been increasingly... We are looking at a situation where the police's internal culture and moral compass has increasingly begun to waver and can no longer protect the public. The ANC has pushed back very hard on this in the National Assembly. Uh, Becky Plele and Sil Ramaphosa have said that attempts to devolve police powers to the provinces are unconstitutional, as the Constitution requires a single police force. They have been backed in this regard by parties such as Good, which has quite publicly said that uh, devolving the powers is unconstitutional. Um, and the ANC in the Western Cape, their leader Cameron Dugmore, you know, this is the most sickly of the ANC provincial um, uh, uh, groupings, um, has come out swinging at the bill, declaring it a threat to the stability of South Africa, uh, saying that the DA is advocating for power sharing through a federal constitution and a federal system and is trying to usurp the powers and functions of a national government via the back door. ANC leader said, we cannot and do not support the federalization and balkanization of South Africa. We have a long and painful history of division. Federalism deepens division. Uh, and he also said that this would destroy the country if it was enacted. Um, so, Chris, let me start with you. Will the DA's provincial bill destroy the country? Well, when one makes such strong declarative statements, I think the burden of proof might rest on the accuser, not the accused. So I think the burden of proof here rests on the ANC to show how or why aren't their ideas and policies leading South Africa into this current 
morass of crisis upon crisis from load shedding to safety and security to civil liberties abuses the most recent of which recent of which we saw in Gauteng with the VIP uh, blue light brigades for someone daring not to move out of the way of one of those um, those convoys so arguably uh, will this bill lead to the destruction of South Africa I highly strongly doubt that and dispute that because in essence, the principles of federalism and the core uh, tenets thereof that would seek to, de to, to devolve national powers to make it sure that provinces can compete with each other for citizens, essentially for citizens' money, for their interest, for them moving to certain provinces, certain metropolitan areas. When you've got that freedom of movement and you've got the devolution of powers, that then makes it, you increase that sort of competition that you attract the best depending on the service that you can offer. It's not just an assumption that you will have that sort of, you know, that pool of taxpayers, no matter how much you continue to mess up with the state-owned entities and every other basic item of service delivery that maybe the ANC takes for granted because they can still afford generators and VIP blue light brigades and all that sort of thing. So in essence, in principle, very strongly in favor of this bill. Um, one obviously has to see sort of practical implementations, but I think it sends a good sort of signal. It's the right uh, philosophical um, sort of path to strike, I think, to, to, to head down. Um, at the moment, across the board, from the last month or two, the policies we've seen proposed just in the last month or two from the ANC now, different bills, um, employment equity, water use um, regulations, national health insurance, all of which aims to centralize more and more power and control within the national government. And Again, that burden of proof point, I don't see how then you change somehow the consequences that have been brought by that kind of thinking up until this point. Well, one could argue that the continued failure of the central government is more a threat to the stability and unity of South Africa than uh, Absolutely. the federal solution would be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I must say I'm a very big fan of federalism, uh, like as, in, as with anything, there are downsides, but I do think the upsides tend to vastly outweigh those downsides. Uh, I'm also totally behind this. I'm not 100% sure whether the the, the, the DA is going to win this legally. Uh, I suspect this is going to end up in courts and it's going to be fought over and it'll probably end up at the Constitutional Court very quickly, if not immediately. Um, and who knows what will happen there. The, the South African Constitution does provide powers to the provinces, but it's still, it's it's not that... It doesn't emphasize that the South Africa is unfortunately not as think as federal a place as it could be, and in theory, this would kind of if if the DA is successful here, it would roll out other provinces also being able to take more control of their own dest destiny, and this is going to be an increasingly hot political issue going forward. Um, the opposition is almost certain to win Gauteng and KZN, even if the ANC maintains its national majority, and that means that there's only going to be more pressure. Because we may face a situation where after 2024, the three most important and populous provinces, um, actually, I'm not sure if the Western Cape is the third most populous province, but anyway, it's one of the most economically important provinces, uh, will be run by the opposition. Uh, and so you're only going to see this question grow in our politics. Gerbrandt, um, what do you make of this bill? Uh, do you think it's a, do you agree with me and Chris that it's um, at least a good idea to kind of look at more local solutions to problems, to devolve powers, to keep accountability closer? to people. I'm sort of loading the question here, but uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think um, this bill is kind of the, it's it's a formal way of um, 
it, it's the formalization of doing things yourself. But I think informally, uh, South Africans businesses um, have been taking things into their own hands for for years now. Now in the Western Cape, you have the um, Law Enforcement Advancement Plan, the the LEAP organization, which is kind of like a parallel policing service that they've introduced there a few years ago, and they've um, put they've they've um, placed these LEAP officers in some of the most dangerous areas, um, badlands of of South Africa. And in, in the last few years, these LEAP officers have really had an impact. They've really brought down crime in areas such as Kailicha, Mitchell's Plain, Langa. Um, so um, giving provinces the uh, more power to, to control something such as their police services really can help something um, uh, like basic service delivery improve significantly. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the, the ANC has a, a, a centralizing instinct. They, they, they're very opposed to, to uh, federalism and the devolution of power. Um, but they are, every year, they're just providing a greater and greater um, justification for it to happen. So even if this bill doesn't get passed or you know isn't getting implemented we're still going to see um in an informal way people and and businesses and ngos um you know delivering their own services and and um relying less on on the government um so it's it's kind of an inevitability and i think also with you know, the ANC losing their majorities in very, in the most populous provinces, like you've mentioned, Nick. Um, I think the case is just going to get stronger and stronger um, in, in the next few years. Right. And I think, you know, federalism has not really been a big issue in South Africa. It hasn't been like at the center of our political debate, but I suspect it will be after 2024, um, regardless really of that election result, because uh, you, you can actually kind of, one of the few things that a lot of the anti-ANC parties do have in common is they're all a little bit more amenable to, to federalization. Uh, the IFP is certainly keen on it because they have such a sort of regional focus in, in KZN. Um, whereas the EFF and ANC are very, very anti-federalization. They are, I think they worship centralization of, of, of control and power probably more than pretty much any other policy except for maybe something like... Um, racial quotas and affirmative action, that kind of stuff. Uh, Chris, any, any final thoughts on this one? Now, just want to reinforce what you mentioned a bit earlier, just how, I mean, should the ANC persist with its policies? And I don't see any reason why it won't. But that in and of itself makes the best case of federalism. So the ANC can, you know, throw their toys at this proposed bill. But by their own actions, they've made the strongest case for federalism. If one is concerned with things like the res potential respect for civil liberties and indeed possible economic growth and economic freedom. Um, so that will likely only, in my view, accelerate because the party is becoming more and more desperate. Should it get under the 50% next year, as, as most sort of pollsters see, um, that again ups the stakes, as it were, for them to have continued access to state resources. Again, it gets exposed. 
and it slowly but surely chips away at this idea that the government in Pretoria should decide everything for the whole country down to the very municipal um, minute level. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm just to show once more for, for, for federalism here. South Africa is a pretty big place and yeah. it's got lots of very different people and it's got a lot of people over 60 million now, probably. And, uh, our provinces are diverse. And I don't just mean that in the crude sort of racial and ethnic cultural right. divisions. I mean, right down to what industries they're mostly focused on, um, how spread out people are. Uh, you can you can go down the list and find a million differences between, I don't know, the Eastern Cape and Limpopo uh, or the Western Cape and KZN. And those problems and differences require different solutions. And federalism provides a structure by which people can uh, get their government to provide those solutions that are tailored for them. Right, so let us move on to our next story. And this is uh, coming to us from uh, Kosatu, uh, once the most power, one of the most powerful political forces in the country, able to bring the country to a standstill at a moment's notice, uh, a, a, a strong part of creating the current sort of labor law regime that we currently have in the country. Uh, Kasatu, however, in recent years, in my opinion, has found it a little bit difficult to kind of find their place. They're still closely tied to the ANC, but they've seen multiple splits, which have weakened them. Uh, and Kasatu's big idea in recent years seems to have been to call strikes to protest the cost of living. So Kasatu has said that its, uh, its unions would embark on a nationwide socio-economic strike, with marches taking place in all urban centers of nine, in the nine provinces. Um, this was going to be a protected strike uh, to, to, to protest various things, um, unemployment, wage cuts, interest rate hikes, poverty, inequality affecting the working class, load shedding. It's kind of just everything that Kosata doesn't like. Uh, and they, they say that it is a demonstration by workers that government needs to do more to end the current levels of load shedding, cable theft, crime, corruption, wasteful expenditure, austerity cuts, crippling the state, suffocating the economy and further plunging workers into high levels of indebtedness and misery. So the Mail and Guardian story, and a story on this actually quotes a certain Chris Hutting from the Center for Risk Analysis. So Chris, why don't you tell us your thoughts on this one? Thanks, Nick. That's a very impressive segue there. I'm sure you didn't have to think about that one more than once. Look, uh, I want to be somewhat kind around the concerns of Kasatu and especially members um, as working working people who would feel the pressures of continually high food prices, um, inflation that is pressing down on their disposable income. So sort of the emotional side of, of the reason to strike. But then seriously questioning the target or the targets of the strike action. So not necessarily um, advocating for different ideas or policies on their own and definitely not calling for more pro-growth, more pro-economic freedom policies from the government side, from their allies in the tripartite alliance, most clearly the ANC. So. My main takeaway, I mean, we're, we're now obviously live here at almost 10 to 2 and thus far very little impact in terms of disruptions, in terms of, you know, people have been talking about it beforehand this week about being worried about how disruptive it would be. But given how little has happened today, maybe, again, undercutting the weight and the influence that Kasatu 
thinks it enjoys, um, even amongst its members that it can mobilize, maybe the pressures on working South Africans, those who do have a job, but they just have to go to work as much as they can. They don't have time for these sorts of, you know, glitzy marches and ways to disrupt things and whatever. That doesn't mean you go and go and, go and march if something is very important to you, but people just just trying to make a living as, as much as they can. So undermining Kasatu's sort of message and mission in that way. And then the other main takeaway, I think the potential pressures and fissures that this continues to exacerbate possibly between Kasatu and maybe the ANC as we head towards the elections next year. Um, maybe the idea that you know they'll start to run as their own political party or something. But the more pressure they get from their members, the more pressure then they meet out um, in their relationship with the ANC. And let's see if that continues to manifest in bad ways for the ANC up into the elections next year. Yeah, you know, the Kasatu really seems like it's been trying to have its cake and eat it too, mm -hmm. right? Uh, which is, a, we're an opposition party. We stand for the workers. We're not in favor of this corrupt government and all the things it's doing. But also we're in alliance with the government. We support their progressive agenda. And if we, even if Kasatu did run as an independent party and somehow got a seat or two in parliament, Mm. You could be 100% sure that they would vote down the line with the ANC on 99.9% .9 of all issues. Kevrant, um, what do you make of this story? It really seems to me that Kasatu is just not as big a deal anymore. Mm. Yeah, I think um, Kasatu is really hurting their, their own cause. And by, by pushing for yet another damaging strike, that's going to already cripple our, our struggling economy. I mean, they're not going to build a very strong case for themselves. What they can do is try to maybe, uh, they're in a prime position of trying to influence the ANC because they're in the tripartite alliance. So they can really push against some of the, the, the harmful policies that really affect the poor the most in South Africa. Most of the policies the ANC implement you know, um, really affect the poorest of the poor. And that's who Kasatu is supposedly uh, representing. Um, so it's, it's, just, um, uh, it's just a vicious cycle. Um, Kasatu will support the ANC on everything, like you said, Nick, then the consequences are dire, then Kasatu will, you know, go on a, a major strike it cripples the economy further, but nothing's, and you know, Kasatu every election says that they're planning on, you know, not supporting the ANC and, and breaking away from the ANC. And they've been doing that now for, for I think the last decade. Um, so it's that they're just noise at the moment. Um, right. Nothing productive um, really comes from Kasatu anymore. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's just briefly go over this one. Uh, it's also related to kind of state of service delivery in the country. Um, and this is a parliamentary question that was asked by, I think it was a DA member of parliament, um, uh, Nicholas Myberg, who asked how many dams have been built across South Africa since 1994. And the answer that came back from government was uh, about 10. Uh, no, uh, some of those are quite big. Uh, the Dihuap Dam and the Berg River Dam, pretty big, pretty expensive things. Over a billion, billions of rand spent on both of those. But somewhat concerningly, 
uh, there's not a single dam that's been built by the government in the country since 2014. Now, uh, South Africa is a pretty water-stressed place, right? We don't have that many magnificent rivers close to our towns. We've got these, you know, we have weird places like Johannesburg and Pretoria, which are not built on major rivers, and yet are some of our most important and biggest cities. Um, and so water conservation, as Cape Town found out a few years ago, is extremely important um, in South Africa. You need to make sure that you've got the infrastructure ahead of time, or else you're going to have water shortages all over the place. Uh, and I'm no water management expert, but I think not building a single dam since 2014, uh, especially when there used to be one new one every couple of years, um, and considering our population continues to grow, uh, this is not a great state of affairs. Um, Herbrand, any thoughts on this, very briefly? Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, we're sitting with the impending water crisis, um, but I actually think we have, um, you know, the ANC always talks about the triple challenges of unemployment, poverty, and inequality, but I think we've got a new set of triple challenges, which all relates to infrastructure and the one is, of course, the energy crisis. The other one is the logistics crisis with our our poor railway services, transportation, um, you know, going backwards and the roads, of course, road infrastructure failing. And then the third one is um, the, the collapse in, in water infrastructure, the lack of maintenance, building, expanding infrastructure, building new dams, um, the I think lack of maintenance of infrastructure has been a, one of the most devastating things that the ANC has brought onto South Africa's economy. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it, we're, we're, you can't you can't wish for economic growth even above 2% if you don't have trains to transport your coal to, to the ports or you don't. I mean, Astral Foods and, and other businesses are now building their own infrastructure, uh, their own water systems, um, you know, for their, for, to keep their businesses running. Um, so it's, it, it, there's no, um, the, the 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 environment for businesses to to operate effectively in this country it, it's not there anymore so so businesses aren't going to expand anymore they're going to scale back on investment um it's really devastating um but the ANC just um there's no political will to to, to really do something about it. And that's why we're going to see the devolution of powers becoming a great argument, like we, we mentioned earlier. Chris, anything to add? Um, the DA wants to take over railway services and, and, and other sorts of infrastructure. Um, that's just going to become a stronger motivation for, for devolution. Sorry, I lagged there a little bit. Um, Chris, anything to add? No, just that um, we're likely to continue seeing this manifest in ways that citizens and civil society and businesses have to try and deal with. Um, so there will be talk of more spending and the Department of Water and Sanitation will talk about that spending, but that doesn't mean it's allocated properly. It doesn't get used for other things. Um, 
but to mitigate some of these challenges, those who are able to, and in connection with those around them, should explore ways that they can mitigate some of these issues. Um, even in, in somewhere like Johannesburg with Randwater, the amount of water that is lost due to just leaks and those basics. Um, in somewhere around planning. 40 percent in Johannesburg, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So you could even build, you know, however many new dams you want, but you've got to fix that and maintain that basic infrastructure. So let's see again if certain provinces and certain metros start to outcompete each other in better ways. Yeah. If they allocate their spending a bit better, given that Johannesburg might well have its fourth mayor in the last what twelve months. I don't know if there's going to be much focus on water provision, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun being a Joburg resident at the moment. Uh, right. So let's move on to our next story. And this is, of course, related to the other two we've talked about in the sense that um, uh, the driving factors behind it, which is that um, uh, investment company Investex says that uh, number of clients making payments to uh, dollar de denominated funds and um, overseas international schools has increased by double digits. Uh, they saw they, they 12 percent of their clientele last year um, was was looking at uh, sending their kids uh, setting up funds and things to send their kids to foreign universities foreign schools and that's up to 15 percent this year which is i think my maths isn't great but like 25 percent increase something like that um and it really looks like south africa's richest are aiming are planning for a future where their children will not be educated in this country. Um, Herbrandt, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think the the Social Research Foundation also um, came out with some statistics uh, earlier this year that showed that even though parents want to stay in this country, they don't want their children to stay in this country. Um, and you know, for a very long time, having a, a, a tertiary degree was kind of like the only guarantee that you have in South Africa specifically to, to, to find meaningful employment. And that's why there's always been this huge pressure from South Africans to enter university. And you've had the hashtag these must fall movement. There's a lot of focus on getting into your university because that's kind of like the only thing that people can grasp onto to, to, to find employment. But I think what we've seen now as well is that graduates with a, with a, a higher uh, post-school education, um, they're now struggling to, to find jobs. And I think also um, things are just getting so bad in, in the country that um, in, a, in a globalized world where it's easier to transcend boundaries and, and, and move across borders, I think the incentive for a lot of young people, educated young people to stay here, um, it, it's, it's not there. And so a lot of par parents are going to invest in their children going abroad and, and, and getting those skills abroad and starting a new life, you know, paying tax somewhere else. No, exactly. Uh, considering how few people, so South Africa has a relatively small number of people who pay, for example, income tax. But then of the people who pay income tax, you've got this actually really tiny group who pay most of the income tax. That's not unusual for a lot of countries. But in our case, it's to the extent that, you know, there's only a few thousand. So if even one leaves, it's actually a bit of a hit to the tax base. Chris, any thoughts on this one? I mean, just given the pressing issues in South Africa, but also how other countries are trying to outcompete each other. So in a global context of more depressed growth, where capital finds it more difficult to find better returns on investment, 
if you if you can't change some of the attractiveness, then don't be surprised if people try and equip their kids better in however whatever way they can. Of course, many people can't afford to send their kids overseas, so that effect it has on those staying in a country um, could be quite negative. They can try and find alternatives. And again, here we I mean we've had a bit of a trend going today with federalism, but here seeing institutions like Soltec um, being built by Solidarity, where civil society organisations are trying to pursue other ways. Um, to benefit their constituents and the, the children of their constituents. You, you're going to see more and more of that for those who choose to remain in the country. I think they're going to try and imp implement different solutions in, in that given geographic location. Of course, you can now nowadays work globally, um, but you can, for example, work globally, still live in a physical place and upskill yourself still with the resources in your given area. Right. Um, I'd be very fascinated and you would take someone with a lot of investigative resources to do this, but to look into the sort of senior leadership of the ANC and see how many of their kids are actually planning to stay in South Africa and how many of them are overseas, uh, getting foreign university educations, or maybe even um, uh, looking at moving overseas or working overseas. That would be fascinating to me. I honestly don't know what the answer would be, but uh, it would be interesting to know. Okay. Um, very briefly, just before we finish, uh, there's been a lot of Twitter, there's been a lot in the news recently because uh, Elon Musk has bought it, taken it over, and he's, as you know, quite a uh, unique personality. <laughs> and uh, he's uh, attracted many admirers and many dis uh, detractors ever since he took over Twitter. He's become, I think, probably more of a controversial figure than he was before. Um, and it looks like his life is going to become a little bit more difficult. So it is definitely true that Twitter has suffered from an exodus of quite a few advertisers, according to Musk himself. Uh, and now the company which created Facebook Meta, as it calls itself these days, which I think is a stupid name, should have kept the name Facebook, but anyway, uh, it looks like it's going to be launching its own competitor to Twitter called Threads. So Mark Zuckerberg has been talking a little bit about it. He says that in the first hour, or first four hours of the app's launch, they got 5 million signups for Threads. Um, it's pretty similar to Twitter. Posts can be up to 500 characters long. You can like, repost, and reply to people's posts. Um, they don't have any direct message capability. Uh, you can also post photos and videos up to five minutes long on Meta. It's now available in more than 100 countries. Uh, so Meta stock went up at the launch by about 3%. Um, and Mark Zuckerberg said uh, that he was very excited about the project, but that um, someone uh, responding to him on threads said, uh, Twitter will, is finished now and will go into decline. Mark Zuckerberg replied, we're only in the opening moments of the first round here. And he didn't want to claim some sort of inevitable victory over Twitter here. But uh, I think Elon Musk and, and, and um, uh, Zuckerberg have actually, I'm not sure if they're serious or joking, but they've talked about having a cage fight with each other, <laughs> which would be quite fun. Uh, Chris, any thoughts on this very quickly? Just if if Elon Musk's buy uh, takeover of Twitter was the solution for all the free speech issues that afflict us, maybe the last few months haven't been the best uh, test use case for that. So, you know, this might be too easy and tried to say, but I think competition inherently a good thing. So let's see if Threads can present a viable alternative, and people sort of migrate to that. Maybe it'll be as uh, as impactful or not as Truth Social. Let's see how that goes. 
Um, but I, I, ultimately, I'll, I'll try and sort of see how interesting it is and what it is of use. If people sort of get frustrated with the various bugs and issues over at Twitter, maybe something to explore. But ultimately, you know, that sort of contestation of ideas, a different uh, value offering from a company, um, a social media company, if you want to give your information to Facebook, of course. There you go. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, history is filled with lots of uh, recent years. There have been a lot of attempts to start rivals to Twitter. This goes back a long way. I mean, Truth Social from Trump. There's another one called Mastodon. There's, there's tons of these things. Uh, but to me, I don't know, this kind of looks like it might be, you know, if it's got a huge company like Meta behind it, it might be a little bit more of a threat to Twitter than some of these other things. Um, Harry, any final thoughts on this? Uh, no, I'll... Um... Uh, I think Chris summed it up quite nicely. I think a little bit of competition might, um, you know, force Twitter to get their all their ducks in a in a row. It has been quite up and down since uh, Musk took over, but uh, yeah, maybe um, having a, a competitor might turn things around. I, I haven't really followed what's happening. Um, at Twitter, because I don't follow Twitter, I don't have an account there. I'm more of a Facebook person myself. Um, so, but yeah, maybe uh, um, having someone in the ring to to fight with will will, will help Twitter to, to, you know, change things and and improve. In this case, they might quite literally be fighting in a ring. Yeah, yeah. go forward with their cage match. Anyway. I think they should sell tickets for that. It'll be far more profitable than anything they're doing with these social media companies. Uh, and with that, um, I think we can call it to a close. Thank you very much, everyone, for watching. And we will see you next week on The Daily Friend Show. Cheers.